All right, good morning, everybody. I'm Dominic Jackerson. I'm the Director of Talent at Index Ventures. And thanks to Carlos and the CCAT team for inviting me here to speak with you today. I was going to talk to you today about stock options. And it's sort of based on a sort of bunch of research I've been doing over the last year. And actually, the research ended up in an old school book. <laughs> but everything that I'm going to talk to you today is stuff which is like, summarizing and condensing sort of key themes and insights that came out of the research and that are in the book. Just to introduce myself, so I didn't do it up front, Carlos. So, Director of Talent Index Ventures. I'm not going to do a spiel about index and, and waste your time for anything that you can get off our website. So, I work with our portfolio founders on anything to do with talent. So, that could be leadership, team build-outs, org design, sort of compensation, such as this like building internal recruiting capability, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the topics that comes up and the questions I'm asked about most frequently, particularly in Europe, because we sort of work across Europe and US, is around stock options. And it's sort of very clear there's this gap in knowledge and obviously like sort of maturity of the ecosystem in terms of stock options. So I started building database, a benchmark database, trying to build a sort of thesis and insights around stock options in Europe. That then turned into a playbook, turned into a deck, until finally we sort of decided internally, like, actually, let's just put this out in the ecosystem rather than just having this sort of crappy little deck that was shared with a few people in the portfolio. So that then led to this book, and there's a software app as well to go with it, which came out at the end of last year. So that's based on thousands of data points across the US and Europe, analyzed cap tables across our portfolio, and you know, loads and loads of stuff that went into it. So I think it's the sort of best data set we have. I'd say, and there's a sort of lag up, getting information around this at seed stage is particularly difficult. So I am going to talk to seed stage, but I'm also going to talk about what will happen if you scale your companies into sort of series A and how that sort of builds out as well. So I'm going to talk to, to, to both topics. It sounds like, yeah, you guys all have a really good understanding of like how important stock options are for, uh, for, for attracting, retaining, motivating and aligning talent. And yeah, it's our, it's our belief at Index. I think it's fairly clear. Over the last five years, we've had this huge increase in funding available across Europe. Obviously, it never feels like that as a founder. Fundraising is always a fucking difficult. But I think the sort of shift in balance has moved from like human capital to, sorry, from financial capital to human capital has been the, the key constraint for like building a, a, a you know, fantastic business. So you're competing in the talent market, obviously, against much deeper pocketed organizations, be they other later stage startups, the big tech giants, corporates, banks, consultancies, etc. So, you know, they can obviously offer a lot more cash, a lot more benefits, a lot more job security. So the question is, how do you compete against those organizations? As a startup founder, you've got two key weapons. Obviously, first being around culture and mission. You know, there's a significant proportion of people who don't want to be a cog in a big machine. They want to be in a small organization, close to decision-making, doing something they can really get passionate about, having real impact. That's obviously something massive for you guys and to think about that sort of culture aspect and mission aspect of the business. But the second thing is, is financial upside, right? You're in it for the mission, but you're also in it because you want to make some money. And that's obviously the same for anybody you employ. So you can't do that in cash form but you can offer it by offering ownership in your, in your startup in the form of stock options. So one of the things, the first thing which really came out of the analysis that, that we did, comparing Europe with the US in terms of ESOP size, right? So this is ESOP size by series from C through to series D. This is US data. Founder share going down from 100% 
through to about 40% by Series A, down to about 10% average across founders by Series D. Investors then increasing through that. And then you've got the employee piece. So in the US, the sort of fairly standard model is seed stage 10% ESOP. It's now actually increasing, like, you know, YC has, you know, their standard term sheet's 20% now, right? So when you look at the data, average ESOP size, this is allocated and unallocated, is 10%. At a Series A, that will generally in the US got to 15% ESOP. And then it will gradually increase with each funding round, sort of 17, 19. So you're at over 20% ESOP size and therefore employee ownership because it's pretty much allocated by them when you're in late stage. In Europe, there's a few key differences. The first one is that the average pretty much is at about 10% ESOP and it flatlines as you grow. So there isn't a increase in ESOP size as you scale. The second thing we found is like way bigger variance, right? The standard deviation in Europe is massive, right? You have got some startups where literally the ESOP is 2 or 3%. You've got others where the founders are like following very much more the US model and is sort of this average hides a lot of variation in Europe. And the third thing is that like the composition of that. So as European startups scale, their ESOP tends to get allocated way more heavily to executives and not broadly across the team. So yeah, that's the other key difference. So it's about two-thirds to execs, one-third to employees in Europe, and it's the flip, the reverse of that in the US. question is, why is this? So sort of four key factors sort of identify for why, why that is. The first is around mindset. I think still there's too many investors, and to some extent founders as well, who have very much focused on the, on the share of the pie. It's sort of, why should I dilute if I don't need to? And so we're very resistant to that rather than taking the approach of if we get the best team, we grow the business, the pie grows. And we're very much on that latter. You know, we're, we're always supportive as index on identifying talents, the key issue you need to drive. If you're going to hire and retain the best people, you have to give them ownership. The second one's around government policy, which varies a lot across Europe. Right. So if you look at you know, UK and also France, like UK, the best system you know, it's, it's actually a, a way better. The EMI system is actually way better than what you can get in the US. It's a fantastic scheme. And even sort of for later stage, CSOP and JSOP and stuff. France has a really pretty good system on Bayes PCOs. But if you look elsewhere in Europe, it's very variable, right? And some, this can be both on a tax point of view and a bureaucracy point of view. It's very uh, penalizing. And that's obviously another factor. Third one is around risk appetite, right? This is around risk appetite for individuals who you might hire. So you've got a chicken and egg between mindset, investors sort of saying, well, why should we dilute if we don't have to? Obviously, if employees aren't demanding stock options as part of their hiring package, it's really difficult. That sort of feeds that argument. Well, why should I dilute? It's not going to make any difference. So you've got that sort of loop. Obviously, that's starting to change, right? As you get more successful exits, you get more people who've done well out of stock option grants in Europe. They spread the word. It's like, hey... Another big benefit of joining a startup is that you can make a lot of money, right? So like Criteo, which we invested in at seed stage, you know, when they IPO'd, it was overnight sort of 50, 60 millionaires, non-founding millionaires created by that business. And those people are now anchoring seed and angel investors in the Paris ecosystem. And they're obviously very, very fired up around the you know, using stock options. Fourth one is a lack of benchmarks, right? In the US, there is good benchmark data about for a given role at a given stage, what sort of stock option grant makes sense. And we haven't had that in Europe. So that's what we sort of set out to change with this research. So let's kick into uh, tips, right? I'll try and shoot through these. 
So first one's around right-sizing your ESOPs. This is very much a top-down view. Okay, so top-down, I saw said that the average now in Europe is this like 10% flatlining ESOP. And we're sort of arguing the next generation, like, i.e. your generation of startups in Europe, we're more likely to see a sort of steadily increasing ESOP with round. So it might be at 10% at, at a seed, but then maybe going up to 12, 14, 16 as you go through series A, B, C. And if you're in a sort of deep tech situation, because obviously it's technical talent where you really have to sort of compete most, then that could actually be higher. So it could be like a 12, 14, 16, 18 sort of situation. That's what we're expecting top down. Let's look, because like a lot of what I'm going to talk about is then into sort of series A and afterwards, because obviously that's where like the bulk of our research was. Looking at seed is, is tricky. And you know, I work with Carlos and the CCAP team on this, so, so they know it firsthand very much. Because as you said, some of you have promised equity, but you haven't made the grants yet. So it's this fuzzy area. If you, you can't collect data on promises. You, know, you can only collect data on the cap table. So if something's just been promised, it's really hard to pick it up. But this is the best data I've got. And the US data is very solid. That's like 500 C companies in the US of which the majority are YC, YC funded. This data is coming from, right? So it's, this is cash comp plus stock option allocations. There's obviously quite a lot of variability there by role. Obviously, technical roles tend to high end. As you go down the stack, operational roles, it tends to be lower. But it gives you a sort of sense there of just how big the variability is, both on cash and on equity, right? So a senior hire at seed stage in the US, 120K salary and you know, maybe 1% option grant. You know, this is like massive compared to you know, so the US or Europe is almost half of that. You know, it's pretty much half set. If you, look, if, if you roll that up, actually, the best data can have is like rolling that up at seed stage in terms of what's allocated. In the US, it's about 5 just over 5%. In Europe, it tends to be like four, just under four percent at sort of you know, at, at that seed, seed stage. So in the US, pretty much it's pretty much across the board, all hires will get some sort of uh, equity grant, stock option grant, and you'll have a formalised ESOP almost definitely. So Europe, it's much more fun. It tends to be again a lot of variability, but it might just be out of the first ten people, it might be three or four who are granted stock options on average. This is again looking backwards, not forwards. But tend to also get like one or two real senior seasoned hires will get a bulk of that. This is what tend to find. Like there's this awesome engineer we really want to hire and you give that person one or one and a half percent, but other people get a much, much smaller fraction. And I don't know if this resonates at all because it's really hard to, as I said, there's so much variability. I think the overall thing is it's art versus science, right? Because you can't get very scientific. Each hire, it's really hard at seed stage because... Each hire, you don't know exactly what direction you're going in as a business. You're still searching for product market fit. You don't know exactly what your talent needs are going to be looking forward, as well as the fact that you're working with people early on. You haven't got to know what their skills are. They won't have had experience yet of managing people. So you don't know how far that those individuals can go. So it's really, really difficult. Uh, not going to beat around the bush. It's sort of actually easier once you get into Series A and you've got more formalized roles and you have a better sense of your direction, it's the toughest bit where, where you're in now as far as stock options go. But some do's and don'ts. So when you're thinking about stock options at seed stage, so do's, let people know roughly when the formal grant will be made if you haven't got a formal ESOP in place yet. Be clear around, be very clear, something very easy mistake to make. If you're talking about we'll make the ESOP when we do our main C round or our main A round, be clear if you're talking about, if you're offering an ownership level, is it pre or post? 
Yeah, so a sort of classic mistake. Can offer the back, the, to backdate the vesting period to when the person started. Give yourself room for maneuver, right? And don't, don't put anything down. I sort of say, unless you're making a formal grant, try to avoid doing anything in writing unless you're really, you know, got a lawyer to look over it or whatever. Just a verbal agreement, but clear on some of those key terms. So it's like a heads of terms, right? And if you do say anything verbally to people, just keep a record of it. Even if you don't share it in writing with the individual, make sure that it's not a memory, one person against another, there's some record there. So, right, so going forward, we're very much advocates of giving something to everyone. It might be even a small amount, but as you scale, make everyone an owner. It's that sort of sense of alignment that you get from that. Super powerful, at least through to 150 people, so, so Series A, B. This chart showing how many startups, what proportion of startups give stock options to everybody in the team during Series A or B. I mean, this is like a year old, actually. It's pretty close to 100% in Bayer, maybe 90% plus. Rest of US and UK is about 60%. By the rest of Europe, it's like one in three companies. So it's really massive differences on that. By the way, the other benefit of, you know, other than the alignment, it makes it much easier from an employee communication point of view. If you're giving stock options to some people and to others, you create a them and us, and it creates this sort of, you can only talk about stock options to this small proportion of people. Whereas if everybody's got something, you can, the education and leveraging stock options overall is much easier if you can talk to the firm and everybody in the firm as a part owner. Um, next one, right, it's a difference in what we say between the US and Europe, because this isn't about slavishly just do what the US is. It's, it's about finding our own path in Europe to, towards what makes sense. So when you start to make executive hires later, like, they will pretty much always, they'll be expecting stock options as part of their package. Across anywhere in Europe, there's enough education now and awareness of stock options, they will ask my, my sense is that with technical talent, it varies, right? Some technical hires you make will have worked in a startup before or they'll be told about them and they'll be, that'll be part of what they're looking for, whereas others won't be so aware and they'll be happy to be hired without a stock option grant. But I think rather than creating, again, that them and us situation, if you're going to give it to one or two of your engineers, give it to all of them up front. Don't, don't get in a situation where you're sort of being secretive about, oh, I'll give you something on the side, but don't tell X or Y. That's like not a, not a great way to start the sort of culture of your business. But for anybody else that you hire, we sort of say, hold off, see how the person performs before you make a proper stock option grant, like a full stock option grant. So up front for that alignment piece, give something small. It might be just a few percent of salary as a grant, just as a welcome on board, you get some stock options, but then assess their performance for six to 12 months uh, before you grant more, uh, which they don't, you, know, you don't have the freedom to do that in the US. And it's a, a drawback because you have to make that higher up front before you know how that person's going to really perform. So take advantage of that here. So actual grant sizes, right? Yeah, and I know this is thinking to the future for you, all right? But it's to give you some like sense of how this is going to pan out as you scale your businesses. At executive level, so this is like a C-suite or a VP level hire. C-suite, roughly speaking, guideline is going to be about 1%. For a true C-suite exec, so where you might sort of build a team of like three non-founding C-suite, okay? about a percent. So if you had, I know I can get quite blasé about this because as index we've had like $18 billion plus exits. So I can get quite blasé about billion dollar exits. But on that notional billion dollar exit, yeah, it is a bit, it does look awkward. 
1%, so $10 million upside, right? Obviously, that's pre-dilution, so it's not going to be quite at that level, but just in rough numbers, you know, you've got that sort of massive upside that you can offer. At VP level, it's a bit more like 0.4 to 0.7%. As you'd expect on the more technical ones, you're hiring a VP engineering, it's more likely to be at the top end of that or a VP product. A VP finance or a VP people is going to be at the lower end of that, roughly speaking. But obviously, it varies by experience, etc. So for the rest of the team, whereas with execs, you, you'll like to be presenting the grant in terms of percentage of company or thinking about the grant in terms of percentage of ownership, with the rest of your team, it, it doesn't really make sense. It's more, we sort of, the, the, the better practice is to think of it as a percentage of salary. And therefore, you present it to the individual as rather than, hey, congrats, you, you've become a 0.02% owner of the business, which doesn't sound great. If you can actually say, you know, you've got a $7,000 sort of stock option grant. And if we grow 10x, that's going to be worth $70,000. It's a way better motivational way of presenting it. Right, this is as complex as I'm going to get in the presentation. I know there's like quite a lot of data. But I'd lay, I remember it sort of said earlier around hold off and see what performance is before you assess what the grants are, at least outside of executive and technical hires. So this is like another nine bots grid to think about performance. And like, this is just my own little invention for like performance evaluation. So you can use it obviously not just for stock options, but for anything else. So it's just contribution per individuals making today and the contribution and potential contribution they can make in the future. So you've got your top right superstars and you've got your middle box reliable contributors and you've got heartaches and whatever else, like good fun making up the labels. But then you've basically got a multiplier. So on what the grant sizes were that had as a percentage of salary before, apply a multiplier on this. So if somebody's an absolute rock star, you might give them double the grant size that was indicated by the grid on the previous slide. Whereas if they're like a reliable contributor, you might give them half of that grant or maybe even less, right? Depends. There's a lot of flexibility around your philosophy as founders as to what approach you want to take to employee ownership. This is on top of the 5% token grant, remember. So... Some other tips just to sort of fill this in. Confine it can be really helpful to offer some sort of cash equity trade-off, particularly in Europe, where you've got this variance in risk appetite, right? Obviously, people's life stages differ, how much they're going to treasure cash differs. So you might, in your offer, make it a transparent thing that you make an offer to somebody. You say, but if you would rather take more equity, take, you know, we're happy to you know, sacrifice some of your salary and we'll give you a larger stock option grant. Do that within limits. But it might be easiest might be like a one for one trade off that you know you give up five thousand on your salary and you get five thousand additional stock option grant. There's no sort of science really. It's very hard to have a science around what that ratio should be. Just be careful you you you're clear about how long that lasts for. Like don't come back for another salary increase for at least a year. Sort of don't, don't get into that situation. I mentioned it a couple of times now. It's just around be, being consistent. Part of the benefit of using a framework like this is that it allows you to be consistent and, if you want, transparent, right? Actually, referring to the Paris thing, it's really interesting. There seems to be a real trend in Paris, and I don't know if you've picked up on this, Carlos, around total salary transparency. It's like amazing. I'm speaking to that, that group of founders, like hardly any of them were giving stock options or intended to, but pretty much all of them intended to have a totally transparent salary grid for their startup. And they sort of published them. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. But be consistent. People will talk. And the last thing you want at this early stage is people starting to feel resentful or like there's, there's secrets going on in the organization. You absolutely cannot afford to have that at any stage, but particularly not when you're a really tight group like you are at that early stage. 
So just to try and avoid those exceptions. Or if there is an exception you want to make for some awesome person, fit it into this model, right? Like this person is clearly a superstar. They might not have proven themselves yet, but they're so clearly then I'm going to give, I can afford to give them a double grant and I can justify that if need be to the rest of the team. So go for the low strike price you can. It seems, yeah, to, to me it seems really obvious, but there are some investors who have this weird thing around, you know, no, you know, why should the employees have a better share price offer than we've had? Da, 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 da. That's the thing, it's nuts, right? If you can get a better deal, you maximize the motivational upside for the employee, go for it. Which you obviously can't, like US, UK, you can get really good strike price discounts. Yeah, EMI can be, yeah, as you guys all know, can be pretty much 100%. Yeah, it's incredible. In the US, you can get like 60, 70% on a, on a 409A valuation. So, Absolutely. Take advantage. You've got fantastic. I think, actually, I wasn't even aware coming into this just how great EMI was from this point of view. That, and, but we should sell it all to employees. Like, say, actually, this is a better deal than you get in Silicon Valley. <laughs> this is incredible. And from a tax point of view as well. Did you say the average was for NMAs? About 60, 65. It varies because as you scale, you've got more prefs. You can get a bit more discount as well. But you've got less risk profile. So you get an independent 409A valuation. From there's advisors who do that. So one I feel really passionate about is uh, around, hopefully you don't have to think about this for a while, but when the time comes, just try and remember, be generous to levers. There's quite a lot, you know, I think it's a really long journey, right? If you're going to do that sort of build to an IPO and have a fantastic exit, it could be eight, 10 years down the line. So people who are working with you now, the reality is that of those first 10, 20 people you hire, only two or three of them will be there if you go all the way to 10-year IPO. <laughs> so they, they're making a fantastic contribution now. They're really putting their blood, sweat, and tears in. So there are quite a lot of weird terms and things that you get on some, in, in some ESOP plans in Europe that basically say, you know, bad lever distinctions can be really broad. Or in Germany, with virtual stock option schemes, pretty much you get nothing. So you get this situation. I think it's really damaging for the Berlin ecosystem, and I'm starting to see signs of it. You know, you get people who put those blood, sweat, and tears in. They leave three years later, and suddenly you're told you're going to have zilch. You're fully vested, but you're going to get nothing because it was a virtual scheme and it's withdrawn. And how that's going to damage your talent brand. Those people will talk. They'll say these guys are shits. You know, don't go and work there. So really think about both your talent brand, about just being having that generosity and camaraderie, and create those ambassadors for your brand. So, you know, you can do this various ways, right? The default standard, which I suspect probably you guys are following, is the sort of 90 days to exercise or you lose them, right? So for vested options, you have somebody who leaves, they have that period they can exercise or they have to forfeit them. Again, in UK or to some extent US, that's pretty much fine, especially at these early stage ones, because the strike price is so nominal, right? So the last startup I was at, exercise for less than £100, which is awesome. Yeah, there's no, it's a no-brainer. Everybody's going to exercise. In other countries where you don't get any strike price discount, that can be really harsh. It can be a big amount of money that people have to put up. So you might want to consider having some mechanism for extended exercise periods. The US, now it's becoming pretty common now, or becoming more widespread of offering like one year of extended exercise period for each year of service that the person had. So that yeah, they have to pay the exercise price, but they've got more time to raise the capital to do that. And quite a lot in Europe, because in Europe, what you find, actually quite a lot of companies have this, you can retain your vested, uh, vested options, but you can't exercise them. 
And that's really because, as I mentioned before, around government problems, that if you've got minority shareholders on the cap table in quite a lot of European countries, it creates a real pain in the neck because you have to consult with those minority shareholders on any sort of major decisions like shit fundraising, which is a nightmare. So instead, they just basically say retain them at their exercise, which is obviously very generous. Before you switch, yeah. a quick question on, on levers. Yeah. There's been a few cases that I've seen where there's a pre-agreed with the co-founders vesting schedule. One of the co-founders a year in decides to leave. Okay. Yeah. Even though that there's a pre-agreed vesting schedule, it seems that the amount that that founder would leave would be so large that yeah. subsequent investors would deem it curious or toxic or perhaps reducing the motivation of the co-founders at state. And then therefore there's a renegotiation yeah. of how much this should retain. With, with that happening, and actually I've seen it several times, yeah, yeah, yeah. what has now showed up as the best practice in order to make sure that it's pre-agreed rather than having to renegotiate? Gosh, it's a good one because I suppose I was focusing very much on employee stock options rather than the founder vesting cycle. So, I mean, I, I would almost flip that over to you, Carlos, and say you're going to have more expertise at the founder point than I'm likely to. No, because I have I have some visibility over it, but good I tend to be... Dodge. Huh? Good dodge. <laughs> well, I'm being open and honest. No, seriously, I, 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 it's a really good question. And I, I'm sort of starting to like dig into much more around founder, sort of founder vesting, et cetera now. But a lot of the time, by the time companies are coming to us, like a lot of the founder things, you know, the early stage founder shift on the chairs has sort of happened a lot. So some of that is invisible. There's a lot of these really tricky ones, things that happen obviously at these early stages that we sort of uh, yeah, have, have less visibility on. These are starting to get more and more further out. Now, Minimizing accelerated investing. It was one of the really strange things that came out of the survey. We did real surprise finding was that like one third of the startups that are surveyed offered accelerated investing for all employees. Whereas like in the US, it was, this would be absolute no-no. It'd be like, what the hell is that about? So it's weird. So in some, most of the things, Europe's sort of much less generous than the US in practice. But on this one, it's the reverse. But actually, we just sort of say this, is, this doesn't make sense to do this accelerated investing. It's basically, it treats, like, if, if you know, a very likely outcome, if you have a successful startup, is more likely, obviously, to be a, a, a you know, trade sale than a, an, an IPO. And in that situation, the buyer is largely buying the human capital in your company. And if you have a situation where all that entire team is going to make a load of money when you buy the company and have a big motivational reason for leaving, can create real tension that effectively the buyer has to has to pay for the additional equity that's going to be that's going to be vested, and they have to then re up with some massive new incentive scheme for those individuals. So we sort of really don't argue for that, and you know, what we sort of argue for is a, a double what's called a double trigger acceleration for the executive team. This is maximum wonk value, right? So, but you've got like a CFO and a general counsel and your executive team. They're obviously going to be critical to negotiating an exit. And they're going to be sort of trying to focus on making that transaction happen and be as valuable as possible. But those are the two people who are most likely to be fired after an acquisition's happened. Because an acquirer is almost definitely going to say, we don't need a CFO. We got that. And we got a general counsel. So it's not a great alignment of incentive like to try and have those people focusing on an outcome that's going to kill them. So having a double trigger so it basically means if there is an acquisition and subsequent to the acquisition, the person gets terminated, then they have full acceleration. So it brings everybody aligned and basically saying, do that for the whole team so you don't have the leadership team uh, at cross purposes.
Right. Um, so celebrating the option scheme. I think, yeah, because I've done it myself in this presentation now. The thing is that you can get really sort of hung up on the mechanics and the how much to give this person, this, that person. And that can take up so much of your mind share that you forget the fact that, particularly in Europe, but even in the US, people are very, very ignorant about stock options. Anything beyond just the idea that, oh, they're quite good to have. When it comes to actually all these terms and conditions and like how they work, the fact that there's zero risk attached to them, etc., people don't know. So you've got to invest the time to actually, if they're going to have a value, you're, you're diluting your ownership. So if they're going to, you're going to get the value out of them, you have to make it clear to people how they work and you know, what, what the upside might be. But you've also got to be careful not to hype them because you, know, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't want to make promises that then go into reverse if you have a flat round for some reason, which might not be terrible for the business, but it might just be suddenly people go, oh, you know, my stock options aren't growing in value. You don't want to get that. So make it clear to people, but don't, you've got to tell them the basics, but don't also make it sound like you're reading a small print in an insurance policy, which makes people suspicious. So you have to get the balance right. And I'd sort of say, obviously, with, with people who are exec, execs, they're likely to want to know a lot more detail and they may well get their own lawyer to cast an eye over an option grant. So one-on-one sessions with those individuals. If you're getting those top performance where you really want to make the motivational benefit of we're giving you a fantastic option grant because we want you to be part of this journey, again, one-on-one sessions or people who are being promoted and getting an extra grant. For other people, it can be more like group sessions. But yeah, just assume people know nothing and outline different scenarios. Like in these scenarios, you might sort of, you know, these might be the sort of fuzzy value of what, you know, where our sharp share price might go, et cetera. So you can calculate what it's, what it's worth. So uh, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. I have a sort of whole section on this, but there's, I almost feel like segmenting your employee base between what's likely to work for those, for, 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 for them. At the stage which you, where you are, I'd just say it's, it's one-on-one, you know, very much one-on-one and really big it up. So this, this starts to get into way into the future. So I'm only going to touch on it. But like it's around refresher schemes. So at, when you go, you know, the standard four-year vest with a one-year cliff, which I'd recommend you all follow, just you can get to sort of be quite fancy schmancy about how you do your vesting schedules. But I just say for the sake of simplicity, and if you go to the US at some point, that's what everybody's going to expect. So don't have some... Innovate in other parts of your business rather than over the vesting schedule. <laughs> Basic advice. But there are a couple of exceptions to that. But So if you want to if you focus on retention, that's the idea of a refresher grant. What we'd recommend here is at two and a half years, maybe three years into the four-year vesting schedule, look at offering a, uh, a refresher grant with a cliff so it coincides with the end of the four-year period, right? So you offer it at two and a half years, but effectively with an 18-month cliff. So it only starts to vest. So people aren't double vesting, so to speak, but they know what they're going to, they know that in advance what they're going to get. So there's less motivation for them to sort of take, take calls from headhunters. The inverse of that, yeah. what, what's the average remaining equity for founders at exit? So if you, if you include your top ups and refreshers, what do you see as the, the remaining percentage aggregate of across all the founders at an exit? By series D, which it's about 10%. So a series devaluation is, you know, in our portfolio on average, is, is going to be series A, like 25 million, series B, 100, series C, um, 250. So like 500 million or so is like an average series devaluation. So you've got a sort of $50 million 
ownership around us by Series D. That's sort of roughly speaking. Here it's really, you have to remember as you scale, you will become a target for poaching from. If you're successful, your team will borrow, will borrow the cachet of being part of something really cool and successful and they will be being approached every day. So a retention becomes an absolute key priority and that's where the, the, the refreshers come in. So we, we'd sort of say companies tend to leave it too late and tend to do it ad hoc because you've got those few early hires where it happens. So think about standardizing after, your, after a Series B. I know it's a long way in the future, but you know, don't leave it. It's a common mistake. Companies just leave it too late and then they lose some key people before they act reactively. But target on your high performance. You don't have to give it to everybody, but just on those key people, lifeboaters or more broad than that, maybe 50% of the team max. And Grant, as if, imagine if you were hiring that person now, what would you be, what, what option Grant would you be giving to, to, to that individual? But one of the issues, especially with these early people, if you think forward, right, the grants they're getting now are at nominal strike price. Later on, almost regardless of how much you're going to give as a refresher, it's going to be a fraction of the value of what they had as early employees. So because of that, I, I tend to sort of think, don't be too mechanical about refreshers as well for those really early people, because you know, it's sort of, there's a fairness thing, but you've also got to bear in mind that they might get, you might be giving them a big amount of equity that could help to hire somebody else, but it's only 10% of the value of what they've already vested. So really think about that. And in that instance, Again, thinking forward, this is the last one I'll leave you with. It's a lot of future gazing. But secondary sales, like we're, we're very big. If you've got the investor appetite that you're oversubscribed for like by a sort of Series B stage, we're, we're very receptive to founders who want to allow a partial exercise of some of those key early employees, maybe if they're fully vested or whatever, that they can get some secondary. And we think that's really motivational for the rest of the team. It's like, Hey, you know, stock options actually are worth something. You know, we're happy for those people to brag and say, hey, I got some money out. You know, it's, it's a really positive sense of like, you know, it's real. It's not just never, never. So actually, it might sound counterintuitive that as VCs, we're supportive of that. But we are, if there is the investor appetite. And if you limit it, right? So it's like 25% of the vested stock can be exercised or a limited upside that they can take out. So obviously, you don't want it to be so much money they take out that they sort of decide to go traveling around the world for the next few years. Sort of avoid that situation. But what, what we really, what leaves a bad taste in our mouth is founders who basically say, I want to exercise, but I don't want anybody else on the team to. That's, we, we don't like that. <laughs> it's like, if you're going to, if you, want to if, if you want to do some secondary and you've got other people in the team who are fully vested, we prefer to see founders who are inclusive and thinking of teams like saying, well, I'm going to, and I think the other people who started really early should also have the chance to so, so I feel like I'm sounding like very socialist here for a VC, but, <laughs> but there is a sort of thing. It's, like, it's a team effort. It's a team journey. So that consistency has to be there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.